Frustrated and flustered, they rejected. Okay, so right off the bat, some of you might need this. So we'll go ahead and we'll clarify terms. It's one of the first rules in logical reasoning. Frustrated is an adjective, and it means feeling discouragement, anger, and annoyance because of unresolved problems or unfulfilled goals, desires, or needs. And it also means having an ambition that has not been realized. Maybe you felt that. Maybe you've been frustrated. The other word, flustered, is a separate word, and it means in a state of agitated confusion. However, I don't know if you understand how Webster's Dictionary has worked over the years, but as it started, it started because the people in America spoke English, but they weren't doing it correctly. So because they weren't doing it correctly, they were using the wrong words, making up words. You've heard people do this today. So we began our own dictionary. You talk wrong long enough, then it becomes right. I remember sitting in class. I was always in uh, the most advanced English classes all the way through college. And I remember in class when I was in high school, and I was not the best student, even though I was in such a class, the teacher said that ain't is not in the dictionary. And I was in trouble all the time, so I was in the back of the room, sitting where a big, unabridged dictionary was. And I opened it up, thought, well, she just said it's not in the dictionary. I looked it up, and there it was. Excuse me, ain't is in the dictionary. And you can imagine how angry she was with me, as she was on a regular basis, because I, was, I wasn't trying to, you know, give the class good information. I was just being obnoxious. But the reality is, if you say it wrong long enough, it appears in the dictionary, then it becomes right. Because that's the way we roll in America. So I don't know if you were taught, but when you say the word often, that's the way it's supposed to be said, at least the, that was correct. Now, if you say often, you used to get corrected for that. The T is supposed to be silent. It's okay. People have said it wrong long enough. Now you can say often and it's correct. Humble is another word. Did you grow up learning that you're not supposed to say humble? You're supposed to say humble? Well, if you're from Texas, especially in the Houston area, if you live there and you live in the suburb called humble, everybody knows you're from out of town if you call it humble. It's humble. You're not, nobody's from humble. Everybody's from humble, Texas. I mean, whoever thought that the H would be silent anyway, honestly. But we have now come up with our own word. Here it is, you'll see it. And if you were alarmed by that, get ready to jump. We're gonna do that other thing again. Flustrated, I might have misspelled it because you might spell it, spell it flusterated. It's not a word, it's wrong. So don't use that word. People do it all the time when they mean that they are frustrated. They mean that they're, they're not getting done what they want to get done, essentially. But when they say frustrated, they're also throwing in there that they're confused. They don't mean that. 
But if they're using a word like that, they're definitely confused. But if enough of us do it wrong long enough, it'll appear in the dictionary and we'll have some sort of a hybrid definition in a few years and I will not be happy, but neither would my English teacher. So we're going to talk about frustrated and flustered because this is the, both of these things are happening to the people that are trying to accuse arrest, and kill Jesus. But we need to get a little bit of background, so you'll see on the next slide, I want to remind you that religious leaders wanted to kill him all the more. That's where we were. Then we got to last week's text. I'm going to read it again because we need to have some background here. John 7, 37 to 39. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. I wanted to throw that up there. I know it might feel redundant to you, because we just spent some time going over those three verses last week. So we're not going to peel that back like we did. But I do want to remind you what was happening. So it was the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, and it was a special day. It's kind of the climax of the event. And as they get to the climax of the event, they've been eating. By the way, it's a, it's a huge feast. I've been asked recently uh, by some Jewish people who are incarcerated, who want to have this feast. And sorry, but no, we don't do this inside prisons because this is a, a rather glorious feast. It's in abundance. I don't know if you've discovered any great buffets after the plague hit because most of them is shut down. We learned last night one of our favorite buffets is shut down permanently. No! It's probably better for our health, but uh, it's gone. But... This was like a huge cornucopia buffet. That's what it was. Everybody brings in all of their produce and all of their other, and there's just tons and tons of feasting. Everybody is eating and eating and eating. It's all about the eating, but not just the eating, because there is a special part of the ceremony at the very end, at the climax. They've been drinking as well, but a priest is designated to go to the Pool of Siloam. And I don't know if you know much about the Pool of Siloam, but you do know that the temple is on the hill in Jerusalem. Jerusalem's on the hill, and the temple's at the peak of it. So that's where the temple is. It's already been rebuilt, you know. But they, they have these um, aqueduct-type systems that are, that are bringing the water to the Pool of Siloam, and it actually could have been multiple pools. But it has to be carried up the hill. So the, it's, it's quite a ceremonial thing where people are bringing in palm branches and they're stacking them. And, and as they're doing this, the priest ritualistically, now remember, this is a culmination of a bunch of eating. They've been eating, they've been drinking, but now a very special thing is happening. He takes a very special chalice and he walks with it, and you know it's in a very ceremonious way, because you, like in a wedding, you know, when people do weddings, and I know some people do it today, they, they don't walk like Barney Fife while they're 
walking down the aisle. Everybody feels like when the music starts and the people start walking, you've got to walk, maybe even pause in between. It's got to look good. You know the priest is walking ceremoniously and the people are just anticipating as he goes down to the pool of Siloam, he brings back a couple of pints of water. It's not a lot. This is all about the ceremony. So he brings it back, this very special water, and this very special water is symbolic of the rains that are about to come that will produce more of an, a harvest so that they can have this abundant feast again. They credit God with all of this. And that's what the water is about. This water is what symbolizes the life that is given to our crops. It's the life that's given to our animals. Without this water, we can't have this abundance. It's the culmination of a great feast, probably the biggest feast of all the Jewish feasts. And then Jesus, oh, I left out a part. There is a flute being played while the priest is carrying this. So as he's carrying it, the flute player is making sure that this beautiful ceremonial music is going, and the anticipation continues to build as the flute is played, and people are watching for the priest, and the priest finally comes, and now the priest has the water, and the ceremony has been made complete with this water, because God, we're begging God to provide the water so we can have abundance again and celebrate again. God, thank you for the abundance you provided. Thank you in advance for the abundance you will provide. You are such a good and providential sovereign Lord. That's what this is about. And then while the flute is still playing and the priest does his thing, it's a beautiful moment and everybody's focused on the water. And Jesus then says this, I'm the living water. In this moment, it couldn't have been a better timely thing. All these people are very vulnerable to the impression that Jesus just planted in their heads and their hearts. He's the living water. Isn't that the guy that, that healed the one guy? Yeah. Is, I heard he like fed people miraculously too. Yeah, that's the one. The living water. It's hard to deny the power of that moment. Okay. That's what we, where we've arrived. Now we pick up with our text today with John chapter 7, verse 40. Read along with me. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. Do you think God knew there would be a division among the people? Do you think he possibly even set it up so that he could deliver what he was going to deliver ultimately at the cross and at the empty tomb? Of course, he knew this was going to happen. It's one of those things that's kind of cool. It happens with us sometimes, too, while we're studying the Bible. We could be studying the Bible, and there could be division amongst us, but if we ultimately go back to Scripture and say, is that what it says? And in this moment, they would be better off if they do. 
but they're divided. Isn't, isn't he supposed to come from Bethlehem? Isn't he supposed to be from the line of David? What's going on here? Well, they were right about a couple of things. They were very wrong about another. But let me give you three right now points I want to make. First of all, the Messiah will be a descendant of David. They were right about that. Here are some scriptures. You can look them up yourself. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 to 16, Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, and the third one, Jeremiah 23, 5 to 6. Definitely, he's going to be a descendant of David. Number two, Messiah will be from Bethlehem. You can't deny it. Micah 5, 2 is your verse. You'll see that yourself if you look it up. And then the third thing I want to say is Messiah will launch from Galilee. The allusion there in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 to 2, only those who know their scripture very well in those days would understand it says he's going to launch in Galilee, and that's what he does. But here is the uh, monkey wrench that scholars today still struggle with. Theologians of all walks struggle with this. You see a chart up behind me, and I just picked one that I thought would be at least reflective of the controversy and maybe even reflective of the truth that might lie within the Scriptures themselves. What you see up behind me is uh, it's an abbreviated version of the two different genealogies were given in the New Testament of Jesus of Nazareth. And there you go. I just said Nazareth. Where's Bethlehem in, in that? <laughs> so, Matthew, you'll see on your left-hand side, at the beginning of Matthew, in chapter 1, he gives this genealogy. And it's a, it's a fascinating genealogy, and I'm, I'm not going to take a lot of time to talk about this, but Matthew, you know he's writing to a Jewish audience. I, I'm not sure if you're aware of that, but that's, he's definitely targeting the, the people who are knowledgeable of the Hebrew traditions and customs and the laws. But Matthew goes through and he says, there are, thus there are 14, 14, 14. You remember that in Matthew? You can look it up, you can see it. Most don't realize what's happening that just see that. But the Jewish scholars would absolutely know what this means. In fact, most of the Hebrew-speaking people that follow Jewish tradition would know exactly what this is. Because the Hebrew number 14, the numerical equivalent to David is 14. They, they have this thing where they have numerical equivalents to words, and 14 is the equivalent, David is equivalent to 14, like yom, the word for day, the equivalent, uh, the numerical equivalent is 24. Isn't that interesting? But why 14 for David? Not real sure why it was 14, but it's 14 uh, is the numerical equivalent. Think about this, though. So as they're reading the genealogy of Jesus, what a Jewish diehard would be thinking every time he goes 14, 14, 14. They're hearing, they're hearing David, David, David. So it's hammered into their heads as they read the genealogy from David through Joseph to Jesus, even though, I don't know if you notice, if you do your work, you can see that Matthew actually skips a little bit. He doesn't provide all the names in order to get the 14, 14, 14. And that's okay, because in the Hebrew tradition, 
they would frequently do that. They would skip one, it's fine, because the patriarchs are the patriarchs, and you don't have to list every one. But clearly the point was to hammer in, Jesus came from David, from David, from David. And then on the other side, you'll see on your right, you see the genealogy that's different. It's not the same. And scholars definitely disagree on this. But the scholars that I tend to find to be trustworthy, that tend to be dedicated to the authority of God's word, the absolute inerrancy of it, those scholars tend to agree that Luke, and, and this is really amazing, because you can do this thing, you say, well, I know Matthew and Luke have genealogies. You can go to Matthew and start in chapter 1, you find the genealogy. You, you go to John, there's no genealogy, but he definitely starts with, in the beginning was the Word. So you figure, when you get to Luke, it's going to have to start, you know, chapter 1, where's the genealogy? It's not there. It's not in chapter 2. You have to go all the way to chapter 3, where Matthew backs up and gives the genealogy. And I think God was very wise in giving us this different genealogy. And up in the chart behind me, what you see is, on the Matthew side, this is the legal right of Jesus to be the heir of David. Because legally, Joseph shows the lineage all the way through, through Joseph's line. There you go. Problem. Joseph didn't have anything to do with Mary being pregnant with Jesus. So how? Oops. Hmm. But God in his infinite wisdom gave us another line. And most of these scholars that I find to be dedicated to the inerrancy of Scripture, they agree this is actually Mary's line. And at last, at the very end, where it should be saying... You know, this should be saying, this is, and then Joseph and Jesus, or, or should be saying Mary and Jesus. It's, it looks like it's Joseph and Jesus, but this looks like Mary's line. And that would, that's not okay in the Hebrew tradition at all. The Jewish law was, you, the, the lineage doesn't go through the woman at all. Well, of course it does. Biologically, it has to. But they didn't count that. But they did with Mary because that gave him the proper genetics to say he came from the line of David. And God was so wise to give us two different ones, knowing that Matthew's audience is Hebrew people. He's really, he's, he's really going to grab the Hebrew people. And, and Luke, Luke is just stating the facts. And, and you can read, you can get online, you can Google, and you can find, there will be scholars out there who will say, well, Luke was, Matthew knew Jesus' family and his lineage and, Luke was just, you know, hearsay. Now, Luke said that he studied the details to make sure he presented the facts. So don't, don't listen to these people who want to disregard Luke's facts. Luke is the one who has proven to be the most accurate archaeologically of all four Gospels. I mean, there's been more evidence that support Luke's facts than the others. But just so you know, all biblical archaeologically... Archaeology supports the Bible, all of them. But Luke, for whatever reason, God has provided more evidence for Luke. All right, so there you go. Just wanted to get that out there because it could be a little bit challenging sometimes 
Don't want you to leave here confused. John chapter 7, verse 45 and 46, we continue in our text. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. (laughs) You know this is going to upset him. We'll get to that. But I want to give you just another. There's many other passages I could give you, but I wanted to give you uh, Luke's. I mentioned Luke anyway. So Luke chapter 4, verse 1. Here's, um, I'm sorry, verse uh, 31 and 32. And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. That's the the idea that we get as we read about Jesus' speeches, is nobody else ever spoke like him. In my estimation, the greatest preacher that ever walked the planet. If I could be like any preacher in the Bible, that's the one I would want to follow is Jesus. Over the years, I have been accused of, well, you're not really a preacher, you're more of a teacher. Does that mean I'm more like Jesus? Because that's what I'm aiming for. I hope that's what you mean. I don't know, but that's what Jesus did. He was an excellent teacher who preached with authority, and nobody talked like him. So if I'm going to try to be like a preacher, I'm going to try to be like him. And the Pharisees and the chief priests, they want to know, why didn't you arrest him, and bring him to us. Nobody's ever spoken like he speaks. If you see the word astonished, you imagine their mouths are hanging open. Because when he spoke, I mean, the, the picture that I painted for you of the climax of the Feast of Tabernacles and the flutes playing and the priest is back with the two pints of water and everything has reached an emotional, euphoric high for everyone and everybody is dwelling on the glory of God and then Jesus says, I am the living water. How could they arrest him? It looked like it all culminated to him. You arrest him? You're going to upset everybody. Yeah, there was some conflict because they started thinking about his words. But nobody ever spoke like him. So they didn't. Okay, so did this tick off the Pharisees? Oh, yeah. Let's read the next verse in our text, starting with verse 47. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. <laughs> of course, that's, that's going to be their response. Can we look at a word specifically in the text? Look at that word deceived. I want to kind of give you a little bit more details. It doesn't really, they don't really come out in the English. So I want to give you the Greek word. You'll see it pop up behind me. There it is. Here's how you say it. See that? Peplaneste. And what it means is caused to wander. Not wonder, wander. Another way you could translate it would be led astray. And if you want to give it a modern vernacular, how about you're out of line. You're supposed to be going this way. You went that way. 
That's what they're telling them. Have you also gone off the rails? That's what they mean. And of course, it means being deceived. Their accusation is that the devil has deceived them and steered them away from the direction they should be going. Officers, you know we want to kill this guy. You know we need him to be arrested so we can do this. You're supposed to do your job. You instead are getting sucked into what he's teaching. You've gone off the rails. You're not doing what you're supposed to do. They're very, very upset. Of course they are. And, and notice they're saying that, don't, don't miss that next verse, verse 49. Don't miss this, but this, this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. We don't want to just pass over that. They're basically saying everybody that is following Jesus, they're ignorant. You officers should know better. They don't know any better. They, <laughs> that's what he's saying. They're, and they're, they don't know the law. That's what it means. That they're, they don't know not to not know. That's ignorant. They don't know. They don't know. We know the Scriptures. You know the Scriptures. <laughs> but the funny thing is, they're kind of doing a backhanded slap because they're telling them, You've been, have you been deceived? They're very upset with these officers. Those people are ignorant and, and accursed. So they're actually telling them that they're following these accursed and ignorant people. You're off the rails. You've gone that way. You shouldn't have gone that way. I want to remind you of a previous passage because we're about to get reintroduced to a character, and I want to make sure you're fully aware of his role because they just said some things that are not true. Now, look at this up behind me. You see this. Does anybody know what this screen is, what that screenshot is? There's Jesus sitting and talking to somebody. Did somebody say this? What did you say? That's right, Nicodemus. And how do you know this? Because you watch this? No, this, well, the chosen also, but... The chosen. It's in the Bible. There you go. And it's in the Bible. There you go. <laughs> so, the chosen, you'll see that it come up behind me. That is a TV, well, not a TV. It's, a, it's a, like a mini-series. They've got season one, and they've got season two out. Um, this guy, you'll see his name. His name is Eric Avari, is playing Nicodemus. In The Chosen, I don't know if you've seen it, it's worth our time, I think. It's very well done uh, for the most part. They've got, Matthew has like a, a tick in it, like he's got some sort of um, learning disability or he might have some other diagnosis, but it, it looks to me like he's got something going on with him that the Bible does not say he had, neither does history. But, you know, it's a it's movie, it's, you take liberties and it's very well done. This is, this Eric Avari is representing Nicodemus, and she's exactly right. It's in the Bible. So we'll back up to John chapter 3, and look where we first started hearing about Nicodemus. Starting with verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. That's the part I wanted you to pay careful attention to. He's not just a Pharisee. We just read in our text, they're saying, have any of the Pharisees believed this stuff? Well... Maybe. Uh, verse 2, This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, we know that you are a teacher come from God, 
for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now, I said rabbi means teacher because it does, but it's a respectful way of, of addressing a teacher worth admiration. So a ruler of the Pharisees, not just a Pharisee, he is a ruler of the Pharisees. He's a, he's a top dog in that group. Well, you can't call him dog. That would be bad for Hebrew people. But he's a, a top person. And as he is hearing Jesus teach, and as he watches things unfold that Jesus does, he cannot deny the evidence. This man is a thinker. He's weighing in the balance of things and something to this guy. We don't know why he went at night. We talked about this before. We don't, the Bible doesn't tell us why he went at night. But what we do know is he is captivated by what Jesus is doing. And he addresses him respectfully. So, our text, as Yolanda told us, it's in the Bible. It's right here. She, she was reading right along in her Bible. John chapter 7, verse 56 picks up. I'm sorry, verse 50. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? Ouch. They just got on to these officers and said, Have any of the Pharisees even believed this stuff? Well, one of your rulers does. And he just put the brakes on everything they were doing. That's interesting. Hmm. And what does he do? He mentions the law. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but I'm going to give you some references. Here you go. Exodus chapter 23, verses 1 and 2. Leviticus chapter 19, verses 15 to 18. Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 16. And Deuteronomy chapter 19, verses 15 to 18. The law actually says you have to, before you can do any type of accusation like this, before you can arrest somebody and charge somebody, you have to actually listen. Give them a, a fair hearing. And there has to be, it has to be based on at least two sets of ears. And they haven't done this. All they're doing is trying to shut this guy up because he's coming in and disrupting what they are used to doing. We don't like change as typically in, in our general nature, we just don't like change. And the Pharisees represent legalism quite well. People who are legalistic, critical and judgmental, definitely don't like other people messing with what they're doing because they like to look good and they want everybody else to look bad. Isn't it amusing that these accusers are angry with these officers because this guy, I mean, y'all have gone off the rails. You're following this guy. I mean, does any Pharisee even believed anything? Well, as a matter of fact, one of your rulers has. Well, they don't even know. They're, they're, they're ignorant. They don't know the Bible. We know the Bible. They don't know the Bible. They're ignorant and they're cursed. They're accursed because they don't know. They're just following this guy. They don't know any better. 
But they're, they're, they're accursed. <laughs> really? Because one of your rulers just brought out the fact that you apparently are not following that Bible you say you know. Who are you calling ignorant? Ouch. <laughs> wow. You just, you're, you're slamming everybody. They're just ignorant people following that guy. Well, as a matter of fact, you're not following your own law, you hypocrites. And he didn't say that because he's one of them. Here's their reply, the last verse in our text, verse 52. They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. So now they're going to attack the messenger. They didn't even address the message. They could have backed up and did some self-evaluating, but no, no, they're above that. They want to criticize everybody else. That's what we do. We like to point fingers. We don't like to self-evaluate. And so what do they do? They want to attack him. He is a ruler. He has earned their respect. And because he dares question their behavior, they're going to try to silence him. Oh, you must be from Galilee like that guy. Hmm. Well, if you remember, they were wrong about Galilee. That's where the Messiah would launch his ministry. So they're wrong. They're making a false statement and a false assumption. But they're attacking Nicodemus. See how they are. It's a fascinating thing. So I'm going to give you a scripture. This is how we do the so what part every time we get a chance. So the scripture has to do with uh, four different things we're going to look at, and we're going to try to apply this to us, some things that we can gather from scripture and maybe some things that we can gather practically that might not spell it out specifically in our text, but we know it to be true. Emotionally, mentally, physically, and spiritually, uh, these things we're going to go over. And the way we launch into it is in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 33, the first part of it says, For God is not a God of confusion. Remember how we started with flustered and frustrated? Remember that? Well, these Pharisees are actually experiencing both. They are confused because they think these people are ignorant when they're the ones actually not following their own law. They are definitely confused because they think that this Nicodemus is out of line and that the officers are out of line, and it's actually them. They are frustrated rather than flustered. I just mentioned the flustered piece. They're frustrated because they're not, not making any headway getting this Jesus out of the way like they want to. Okay, so let's just look at a few things, four things here. First of all, you'll see it come up behind me. The devil will try to frustrate and fluster the plans God has for you. That's what he's doing in this moment. Even though it is the Pharisees that are frustrated and flustered, the devil is trying to stop the progress of Jesus. Do you see it in the text? Yes. It's not working very well at the moment, but there will come a time when God will allow things to happen so that Jesus can get to the cross and show the world how much He loves each one of us. But the devil will try to frustrate and fluster the plans God has for you. And think about this and apply it in all four ways that I gave you up front emotionally, mentally, physically, and spiritually. Think about that. So 
you have something in front of you that God wants you to do, whatever that is. You might not even be aware of what it is, but God has something for you to do. That's why he called you. He has a plan for you. And things can happen in such a way that you could feel frustrated and flustered because he's going to try to do that. He's going to try to make you feel like you can't. He's going, to make, he's going to try to make you feel like you don't know what you need to be doing. He's going to try to confuse you. He's going to try to frustrate you, both flustered and frustrated. Emotionally, he could, the devil can make you feel like you're going the wrong direction when you're actually going the right direction. How do you think the officers felt when the Pharisees said, hey, why didn't you arrest him and bring him to us? What's going on? They said, well, nobody ever spoke like that. Don't you know they felt the pressure? Because they can get in a lot of trouble for not doing their job. And so they're probably second-guessing their choices. But it was the right thing for them not to get involved in arresting Jesus. They're in trouble right now. And emotionally, they're probably thinking, oh, no, did, did I do the wrong thing? The devil can get in you and cause you to feel that way too. So mentally, and get in your head. The devil can get in your head so that when you're supposed to be doing whatever it is God has you to do, it could be having these crucial conversations with people at work or people in your family or the neighbor or, or whoever. It could be doing that thing that God wants you to do, but because there's other things in your head, you're not focused on what you're supposed to be focused on. Or maybe it's even physically. There could be something that the devil can, can throw in your path that can make it Sometimes some of us, we have a hard time just getting out of bed, much less getting to church or doing that thing that God wants us to do. Maybe we don't even think about the thing that God wants us to do because it's so hard physically. Sometimes there are things that get right in our way. It could be a flat tire. It could be engine trouble. It could be bills are overwhelming and it just we just don't it feel like doing that thing. Or it could be just other things that get in our head and just... I'm going to stay home. I'm going to stay home. I'm not going to to get out today. And maybe God needs you to. Physically, bad things happen, and sometimes the devil uses that to get us flustered and frustrated. And spiritually, he can get us second-guessing. Like these Pharisees, they're, they're, they're confused. Nothing's ever good going to come out of Galilee? Are you kidding me? Look in front of you. You've got both Nicodemus and Jesus. And we don't know if Nicodemus came from Galilee, but they're making the accusation. Fine, if he's from, if he's from Galilee, he's right. He's right. Second, Jesus can frustrate and fluster the devil's schemes against God's plans for you. Oh, it works on the flip side too. So, if you decide you're going to still go ahead and do what God wants you to do, even if you're not feeling it, even if your head's not in the right place, even if you've got physical obstacles, maybe your own physical body or other physical obstacles, maybe you've got something going on spiritually and you just feel like you're not where you need to be, God can still frustrate and fluster the devil's plans to stop you. The three, the third thing. Faithfulness is the key to success and fulfilling God's plan for you. 
It's that thing I, I refer to as tenacity on a regular basis. I love to have that word connected to faithfulness. I like to call it spiritual tenacity. It's that die-hard, go-getter, steadfast, stick to as Chuck Swindoll says. That is will, what will help you succeed in fulfilling God's plan for you. And then the fourth thing, and the final thing is this. God is faithful to his faithful ones. There is a reason why we, when we talk about the Megillah, when the Hebrew people say Megillah, which means scrolls, the reason why they think when you hear Megillah, scrolls, the scrolls that are supposed to be read, there's a few of them, but the main one that all of them think of when you say Megillah is Purim, the story of Esther. Why? Why does God make it so important that we're supposed to remember this every year, the story of Esther? It's because of this right here. God is faithful to his faithful ones. If you will be faithful, you don't have to worry about the devil's plans to disrupt things and to fluster and frustrate you because God will flip it and frustrate and flip the plans of the devil. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the assurance that you take care of your own. Help us to do our part. In Jesus' name, amen.